0: Genesis 28, 10 to 15. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled towards Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, and the God of your father, Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I've promised you, amen. And Jacob didn't sing, I long to hear your voice, in that moment. He lay down with a rock as a pillow, and that's what he got. And then that required a response from him. So just bear that in mind as we walk through. And this morning's message, because we love titles for messages, um, the, one, the one where Jacob gives up control. <laughs> that's where we are this morning. Let me pray for us, and we will we'll dive in a little bit. Uh, Father, we ask that you um, stay close to us this morning. We ask that you speak to us, that you challenge us. You challenge our approach to you. You help us realize what it is that we often ask without thinking and what that demands of us. And we ask that, that we don't shy away from asking those, but you give us the courage and the strength to lean in and to step out and to continue following your call. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So Jacob, um, his name, that name Jacob, means this sort of schemer, deceiver kind of thing. And he's a guy who cheated his brother for a birthright, which was like the most important thing of the day. And then he cheats his brother, again, for a blessing. And then he cheats for land. Because he's someone who has a scheme. He always has something going on. There's an angle. There's a plan. There's a manipulation in play, which in our society is kind of a trait that's somewhat revered in some ways, the wolf, the one who's going to win. Because you've got to fight. You've got to step on anyone you want, anyone you need to, to get to the top. But if we look at Jacob's life, it actually is a picture of failure. He fails in relationships. He fails with his family. And his plans kind of cave in. So, you could look at it like that. But if we look at Hebrews, we jump to the New Testament for a second, we see that Jacob is actually commended for his faith. So, there's some encouragement there, that if you feel like you're a failure, or when you feel like a failure, maybe, there's a man in the Bible whose life was filled with failures, yet he ended well. At the very end of his life, the word the Bible uses to describe his life is, is faith, So failure is not the end, but it is always part of the story. Um, A quote from Roosevelt says, "Um, "'Far better is it to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though chequered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory or defeat.'" And to provide a bit of balance, um, Churchill said, um, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Which, I mean, that's such a British outlook on failure. (laughs) Which I enjoy. But it is inevitable. Failure is inevitable as we step out really for anything. There's going to be times that we don't hit, hit the target, we don't quite make the mark. But especially when we're doing something as important as gospel work, there's going to be times that are failures. And Jacob's life is filled with these defeats. But we see God working in his life, calling him to something greater. And we see some of the areas where he went wrong, but also how he eventually recovers. Because Jacob believed in that kind of American dream sort of success. And the idea that if we're not getting it fast enough, we have to come up with a scheme to get there, to achieve it on our terms and our timeline. So, his early age, he begins to scheme for a blessing and this birthright idea. When he was born, it was revealed that somehow, even though he was a second born, he would get the birthright. So it was already promised to him, but not on his timeline. So he comes up with a plan. In Genesis 25, as the boys grew up, Esau, Jacob's brother, became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebecca, his mom, loved Jacob. Yeah, so we can already see this is not a recipe for great success. But one day, Jacob was cooking stew. Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, Esau said, who's obviously quite dramatic. What good is my birthright to me now? Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So he swears the oath, selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother, Jacob. And Jacob gives him some bread and this lentil stew. And he ate the meal, got up and left, and showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. So Jacob took it from him. But before we delve into that, there is an important important aside here that although Jacob was wrong, yeah, and he stole this thing, and took matters into his own hands, and he tried to work his own timeline, Esau was at fault too. Back into Hebrews, make sure that no one is immoral, it says, or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. Has Esau rejected God's birthright in his life. So we don't want to skim past that too quickly. We don't just brush that under the rug because, well, there's another thing going on. There are multiple things going on in Genesis all the time. Because we do this too. And that's why I want to pause just for a second. We reject what has been promised for us for a seemingly immediate reward all the time. It might be better than lentil stew, but still we do it. What has God created us to be? What has he made you to be? If, if I reject that which he's made me to be, even when it feels like a, self, a, a self of, you know, self-deprecating humility, even if it feels like that, like, oh, it's not, I'm not trying to use my own, pomp but Even in that sense, even with that tone, it becomes godless. You're removing God from your life and trying to build it on your own. So Jacob steals the birthright. Then he steals a blessing. So we jump again a couple of chapters. Rebecca Mom, overhears is what Isaac has said to his son, Esau. So when, I saw, when Esau, sorry left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son, Jacob, hey, hey, listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, "Bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Listen to me, do exactly as I say. Go out to the flocks bring we two fine young goats. I'll use them to prepare your favorite, father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless it before you die, before he dies, sorry. But look, Jacob replied to his mom, my brother Esau is a hairy man. My skin is smooth. What if my father touches me? He'll see that I'm trying to trick him, and he'll curse me instead of blessing me. Notice that Jacob doesn't say, hey, mom, this doesn't feel like a good plan. Hey, mom, I don't, this feels a little maybe immoral. No, he says, hey, but what if we get caught? Like I'm in, (laughs) but what if I get caught? That's his fear. His fear is being caught. He doesn't care about right or wrong. So they try this thing. They take some fur. Isaac, his dad's really old here. He's barely able to see. Apparently, he can feel a bit. They, they trick him. They cover Jacob in goat skin to make him more Esau like, I guess. They take the food in. Isaac's got some suspicions. He's a little, I don't know, let me touch your arm. Which, I, I mean, even at that point, you feel like, come on, if you have some suspicions, maybe ask a few more questions. But anyway, he touches the arm, he reaches out, touches this fur, and he thinks, this must be him. You know, Esau was always a bit goat-like. <laughs> always gave off a bit of a Mr. Tumnus vibe. It's got to be right. He carries on with the blessing. And they took words so seriously at that time period that the, the word, once it's spoken, cannot be taken back. It's done. Isaac can't take the blessing back. It is now stolen. Esau is, unsurprisingly, a little put out. So he hears that his brother's taken this, um, stolen this blessing from him, and he's out to kill him. Jacob hears this. And in fear, in an attempt to maintain what he's built, instead of facing the situation in trust, Jacob runs. And for the next 20 years, he pays for that decision, steals a blessing. He steals a birthright, and he didn't have to. He didn't have to steal them, because God had already told them, told him that they were his. But no, 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 Jacob has to be in control. He has to have a handle on the timing. He was supposed to get the birthright, but not this way. This wasn't the way he was supposed to get it. And Jacob spends much of his life trying to get for himself, trying to earn for himself what God wants to give as a gift, and we spend much of our lives doing the same, trying to earn for ourselves what Jesus wants to give us as a gift. And if we were to build a kind of relationship with God, that, a relationship that accepts his gifts, rather than trying to to try work for them or earn for them ourselves, I believe the joy in our lives would soar. However, I actually sympathize with Jacob. I remember this guy He's the guy who grew up in the family as the cook. His older brother, he's the hunter. You know, he's brave and strong. His dad reveres him. His, his mom loves Jacob the most, you know, his father loves the older, cooler, hunter brother. And I have a feeling, a suspicion, that may have caused a few psychological problems, a few feelings of rejection. And if you have a rejection from someone you love, that's going to result in a feeling of unworthiness to some degree. It's going to be challenging to embrace a feeling of, or an understanding of trusting a God who loves me. And we've touched on this here and there in the last few weeks. We often think of sin as actions sort of external, things around us, things that we should not do. So often, we don't give as much thought to the power of sin within us, the idea of not living into the full image of God that we were born to be, that birthright idea. It may not be your, your doing, maybe not your intention. It may not be your fault. It may be due to a past hurt, could be a current circumstance. It still matters, and it's still your responsibility Everyone has a varying amount of work to do in this area of detangling our minds from the lies of the world, living fully into who God has made you to be. Whether you puff yourself up and take control from God or put yourself down and not live into the full meaning of an adopted heir, all of us have work to do here. And Jacob spends years, years learning that God does in fact love him. His upbringing led him to be an, I've got to get it for myself. I'm on my own kind of person. I've got to fight for this thing. I've got to be in control. Whenever God offers him something, he's sure there's a catch. There's a trick. Maybe that resonates. God wants to forgive you of every sin, take you to a heaven for eternity. Do you often wonder where the catch is? Because there isn't one. It's Grace. The partnership we have between us and God is uneven. It is not 50-50. God is willing to chase us across that gap, which we saw in the Garden of Eden last week. God called to Adam and Eve. He sought them out. Where are you? What have you done? Jacob flees to Haran. And as he's fleeing, he hears these two competing voices for the next 20 years. The voice of his past self saying, you can't. You're unworthy. It won't work. You've got to get it yourself. And then the voice of God saying, but I can. I will. Maybe you're not worthy, but I'm willing to work in your life. It takes him 20 years to figure out which voice he should listen to, and I don't want it to take us that long. Some of you, it's taken that long already just to get to this point, and some of you don't have another 20 years. we got to move. God meets him on the way to Haran. He has this dream, which is now known as Jacob's Ladder. It's the passage you read. It's not really Jacob's Ladder, actually. It's actually God's Ladder. But we've come to call it Jacob's Ladder, and somehow it's inspired almost every steep hiking trail around the world to adopt that name. But he has this dream at Bethel i read it again. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba. He traveled towards Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. He found this stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down this stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. He said, I, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather, Abraham, the God of your father, Isaac, The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust on the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west, to the east, the north, the south. All the families on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Now, to me, hopefully to you, that seems like some solid assurance from God. He says, I can meet your needs. I'm going to use your energy to do it, but I can meet your needs. Shows him this picture of a ladder to express how he can meet those needs in his life. The angels going up and down. God taking up prayers from earth to heaven and then bringing down these blessings from heaven to earth. Which you know, I love asides. Um, as an aside, in John 1, in the New Testament, Jesus refers to that image again with himself, as the ultimate bridge going up and down, taking the prayers up to God, the blessings back down to earth. So Jacob has this powerful experience with God, this powerful assurance. This should be, this should be everything you want. He responds, though, as someone who still needs to be in control, who won't trust God's timing and God's promise. Jacob awoke from his sleep, it says. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. He was also afraid. He said, What an awesome place this is. Now, none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. He met with God, but he still has this opinion that it's some kind of luck. It's, some, it's by chance. Like if I'd slept a little bit further down the road, if I'd chosen a different rock as a pillow, I might have missed it. I just happened to sleep in the right place. It was the right place. It was the right time. It was all by chance. Then he goes on, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God, and this memorial pillar I've set up will be a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. If God is with me, if he provides, if I remain safe, if, if, if. And God has just declared, there is no if. He said, I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised. I will not leave you. So Jacob didn't have the best partnership with God. There wasn't this level of trust and dependence that God wanted him to have. Jacob still viewed blessings kind of as luck, as a lottery, a game of chance. And that's not how God's wo- God works. Jacob's attitude of, if God will be with me, then he will be my God. That is not the relationship we're called to. Striking a deal with God. Here's the deal, God. If you do this, I'll do that. God's already done his part of the deal. Jacob said, in this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place of worshiping God. I'll present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Sounds kind of good. But then when you, when you think about it and you read it, you realize he's actually trying to limit God. He's saying this is where, this is where God's going to live. This is my God place. This is my God bucket, just like we do. Here, here God, this is, this is the box where I want you to be on Sunday morning. That's my God box. That's my God time slot in my week. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's in a family box. Maybe it's in a social time box or work. Maybe there's separations. But there's boundaries that we put up, and we say, this is your house, God, this is where I want you to be. I will come and visit you there on my terms and my timings. And God does not want to be treated like an aging relative that you feel obligated to see. He wants to be involved in every part of your life, not at a certain time or place or tenth. He continues Jacob onto Haran, and, and we skip chapters here because of, you know, time. But he decides he wants to marry this woman, Rachel, that he's met and, fall in love, and falls in love with. Incidentally, Rachel's his cousin. It's fine. It's fine. He's the, she's the younger sister, and the tradition at the time is that the older sister had to marry before the younger one was, was eligible to, if you like. So a plan is hatched from our schema. So in lieu of wages, he's working for his uncle. He says, I'll work for you, uncle, for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Now, Laban, his uncle, says yes. I'm guessing he sees some immediate reward and figured that that he'll handle the consequences in seven years for for what he's going to gain right now, which seems like a family trait that we have going on here. But we don't really know why he said yes to this. But he works for seven years for Rachel. They get married. At the wedding, Jacob drinks too much. It's a great wedding. And weddings of the day, the the bride wears veils upon veils, because that was the custom. So even on the wedding night, they wear these veils. And Jacob thinks he's going to bed with with Rachel, but in the morning he wakes up, and it's the older sister, which is, you know, awkward at best. He's a little displeased. He goes to his uncle. He says, Laban, uncle, what have you done to me? And Laban says, well, it's, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. But but wait! Tell you what, wait till the bridal week's over, and we'll give you Rachel too, provided you promise for to work for another seven years. Laban is full of wheeling, dealing, and loopholes and cheating—another family trait. But Jacob agrees. So now Jacob has two wives, who are sisters, and he has children. Leah and Rachel are now fighting over who can have the most children. So Rachel's not not bearing children, Leah is, so they start bringing handmaids to him so they can have children through them, so they can have this prideful competition about who has the most children. And it makes you wonder, did Jacob ever see the parallel? He was tricked by this father, the uncle, into believing that an older daughter is the younger daughter. Do you think it made him remember when he tricked his father into believing that a younger son was an older son? His wives are fighting over him one night. They're, they're fighting so much that they've got these aphrodisiac plants. And then see, Genesis is fascinating. And they were fighting over these plants. And who, who would have the right plant to go in to entice Jacob so they could have more kids? You know, Do you think he, he thought about, hey, do you remember when I had that bean soup that I used to entice my brother out of a birthright? As Jacob looked into Leah's eyes, the older sister, did he draw that parallel of rejection she must have felt from him? Her own husband, when he loved the younger sister more. Do you think he saw, remembered the image of him feeling like that as a child, looking into his father's eyes, feeling the same rejection as he favored the older brother? We know what it's like to take the hurts that we felt in our own lives and inflict them on others, whether we mean to or not, whether we realize it or not. We don't want to do that. That's not a goal. But while we work on our own strength and through our own power and while we try to retain the control from God, that's what happens. Jacob struggles to trust God, so the pattern of deception just continues on and on And on. We believe that God loves us. We believe that God has a plan for our lives. We believe His word is truth. We believe those things. But when it comes to trusting, trusting God with my decisions, trusting God with my family, with my life, just like Jacob, we fall short. And Jacob comes to this crisis point in his life where he's able to take what he believes and begin to make it real in his family. So things are getting really challenging with Laban, and and God says to him in Genesis 31, so we're skipping on, he says, return to the land of your father and your grandfather and to your relatives there, and I will be with you. And Jacob does it. He finally is following God's direction as it's been asked, and not his own schemes. He follows God's direction and begins to recognize God's incredible protection. Genesis 31, Jacob hears God. He says, "Okay, I'm going to go back to my native land. He still doesn't do it the right way. He gets out of town the same way he's always done. He runs, doesn't tell Laban what's happening. He outwits him, the Bible says. And as is common in our story, Laban's a little put out. He chases him. He says, how dare you drag my daughters away like prisoners of war? Why do you slip away secretly? Why did you deceive me? Why didn't you say you wanted to leave? I'd have given you a farewell feast with singing and music accompanied by tambourines and harps, which that's a sound. Why don't you let me kiss my daughters and grandchildren and say goodbye? You've acted foolishly. I could destroy you. But the God of your father appeared to me last night and warned. He said, leave Jacob alone. And then finally, Jacob realizes, God is with me. I'm not in this alone. He was there last night protecting me ahead of Laban, even arriving. God was working, as we saw last night in Abraham's life, before even including Abraham in the plan. And he was protecting Jacob before he even knew there was a threat coming. Jacob finally begins to recognize God's blessing. He starts reflecting on the past 20 years, how God has provided, the provision even of Laban's family, of work, his own family, the business he's built, this flock that he has. It may not look as he'd expected, but he's seeing and recognizing God's hand. And the turning point for Jacob, which it often is for us, is when he admits, well, I rushed away because I was afraid. He admits it. He admits what he's always run from, really, or what he's always fought against, fear. And he's still fearful. He's fearful that when he returns, Esau will be waiting for him. And he's preparing to meet his brother. And he starts cooking up a plan. But God has a different one. And during the night, Jacob got up and took took his two wives and two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. And after taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. And then, left alone in the camp, a man came to Jacob and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it from its socket. And the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. And he replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you'll be called Israel. You have fought with God and with men and have won. Tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. He blessed Jacob there. And the point that I want us to really take here is that a wrestling match is perfect for someone who ran from every problem. Because you can't run from a wrestling match. He can't run. You can't hide. There's no more tricks. There's no more maneuvers left to play. He was wrestling with God. And he finds this unique kind of healing in this moment. Because God actually gives him a limp to bring a new dependence upon God that will heal his soul. So I don't know what you're wrestling over. Maybe it's an unanswered prayer. Maybe it's a character change you just can't see happening in your life. Maybe it's a habit you're struggling with. Maybe it's over the way you feel God wants to manage your relationships and you don't think they should be managed that way. Maybe it's over a decision. In any wrestling match, any wrestling match, the question is, who's on top? So we a wrestling match with God, who's in control? Jacob was wrestling with God's will in his life, unwilling to let God take control. And as you explore how and where God is calling you and directing your life, you will need to trust him. You will need to give him control and wrestle with God's will in your life. Because ultimately, for Jacob, things would have gone much smoother if he'd done that much sooner. So take stock of where you are, where you're reluctant to give up control and trust. Challenge yourself to consider why is that hard for you in that area? Do the work so that God can do his work in you. Do the work. Let's pray. God, you promise great promises. There are no ifs. There's no bargaining. There's no need for it. You've done your part. The partnership between us and you is not even. And we thank you. And we praise you with great humility that it is not even, that you bridge that gap. You come to us. So challenge us. Lay on our hearts the things that we're unwilling to give up. Help us see that. Help us consider why that is. Show us that mirror of our own hearts and minds and desires. Help us to trust you. Help us to boldly, unashamedly trust you, to be all out to live your plan for our lives. Day by day, we long to hear your voice. Help us to really listen to it. Help us to have the strength to listen to the answer of that statement. Help us to have the courage to really step out and respond. Amen.